Welcome to Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast where small business owners are celebrated as the backbone of the American economy. Each week, we introduce you to tycoons who share their stories and advice so that small business owners may learn from their experiences. Tycoons is powered by Backbone Planning Partners, Fintrepid Solutions, and Pivotal Advisors. Join us now as our hosts connect you to today's tycoons. Good afternoon, tycoons. Welcome to this episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. I will be your host today, Landon Mance. Austin is frolicking around uh, Washington, D.C. at a conference all week. So um, I got the pleasure of filling in for him for a, a really awesome, special uh, conversation today. So uh, if, it's your, if it's your first time joining Tycoons, uh, thank you. You know, Tycoons, uh, we're we're in this uh, about two and a half years, 120, 125-ish episodes and, and counting. It's put on by small business owners for small business owners. And really, you know, we started Tycoons to provide a platform for the small businesses who we believe are the backbone of the American economy. Uh, usually the companies that are getting all the, the, the glitz and the glamour are the, you know, 100 million, 500 million, $10 billion exits and, you know, big corporations. And we're bringing on, you know, main street businesses uh, every single week to talk about their successes. And occasionally we are fortunate enough to, uh, to bring on just a really impactful nonprofit. And uh, today that is very much what this conversation will be centered around. So We've got the pleasure of uh, Steve Nesbitt joining us. He is the president and the co-founder of Shields and Stripes, and they are a 501c3 that provides therapeutic and health services to first responders, active duty military members, and veterans. Steve, thank you so much for being here, man. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's my pleasure and uh, happy to spend this afternoon just talking a little bit about the business myself and uh, connecting with everybody on. Here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first and foremost, um, you know, you served for 16 years um, in the air in the Air Force. You've got some pretty pretty cool stories. You've shared a couple of those with us, kind of offline as we we're getting to know you a bit. So, thank you. We've got deep deep gratitude and respect for our servicemen and women, past, current, and and future. And we pray for for you guys every single night. And we pray that young folks continue to get inspired to join the armed services so that people like myself can, uh, and the people listening can, can live in the best country in the world. So thank you for your service, man. Much appreciated. Uh, thank you. It was my pleasure. I uh, got, got to scratch just about every itch um, that I wanted and didn't want. So um, it was a pleasure serving. And uh, now I get an opportunity to help the others um, that are in still and uh, coming out. Yeah, absolutely. And we want to, we want to hear all about that. But before we do, I assume that you weren't, uh, you know, born into being a pararescueman, you know, um, I think you had to uh, be, be of age to, uh, to be doing that. So uh, leading up to that pivotal point in your life, you know, when you decided to uh, join the Air Force, talk to us about this, Steve, you know, before that, you know, where'd you grow up, brothers and sisters, tell us about your parents, you know, education stuff you like to do outside of work, just uh, anything about your background that's important that you want to share with us? Yeah, great question. Um, 
So I, I was born in Aurora, Colorado, spent a few years there. Um, my dad was in the Air Force, security forces, police officer. Um, and then he got out to spend more time with uh, the family. So I've got actually a twin brother and an older brother. So after a few years in Colorado, we ended up moving down to Tucson, Arizona, where I spent the rest of my childhood before I ended up joining the military. Grew up down there. My dad had spent his entire career and in, in the next 20 plus years in law enforcement down there in Tucson um, and eventually taking over the gang task force unit where he spent a majority of his career and really started to, um, that kind of started to shape my path um, where I spent a lot of time doing the Explorers Club and looking at becoming a police officer and, and following my dad's footsteps and then also get, spending the time around my friends. A lot of my friends in high school were focusing, they're very intelligent individuals and I was not. So they went into engineering and whatnot. And I was like, well, that's what all my friends are doing. But my dad was a police officer and it seemed like two opposite spectrums of, of directions that I wanted to go. And so trying to figure out what, what it was that I wanted as I graduated high school, I spent my entire career, or sorry, my entire childhood playing soccer. I had this dream and this goal to, to become a professional soccer player and no scouts were really coming out to uh, Tucson, Arizona, looking at Santa Rita High School. And going, this is the next star in, in Major League Soccer. So didn't really have any, um, any scouts coming and looking at me and, and no scholarships. So it's just, what am I going to do with my life? I have, you know, I want my, to hang out with my friends and do this engineering thing, but I, I actually have no interest in doing that. I just want to be around my friends. And then I have a pathway of being a police officer like my dad, but that doesn't seem like something I really wanted to pick. This still wasn't my passion, but I wanted to become a professional soccer player. I didn't know what to do. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go to college for a little bit. I really enjoy space, stars and stuff like that, astronomy. So I actually went to school at Pima Community College for astronomy. And as I showed up to school in classes and I looked around at who was around me, it was a lot of elderly folk. And I was 18 and like, man, what am I doing here? This is not it. This is not the place for me to be. And there's got, there's a lot more to me out there. And so talked to my dad <laughs> and my, my parents about joining the military. I went to a recruiter, an Air Force recruiter, because I knew I wanted to be in the Air Force. That's just the, the lineage that I came from, from my grandfather, my dad, and now me. Um, and so I went to the recruiter and I was like, what, what can I do? Scored really well on the ASVAB. And they offered me a lot of position, a lot of job opportunities. And one of them was to become a nuclear weapons apprentice. And there I saw the path. I was like, you know what? I'm going to become a nuclear weapons apprentice. I'm going to get out and I'm going to go work for Raytheon. And bam, I'm back with my friends. I'm back to hanging out with my boys. That's an easy way to do it. I didn't get a scholarship to become an engineer, but I'm going to get the military to teach me. And then I'm going to do it for four years. And I'm going to get them to pay me to go to school, to put the GI Bill, and I'm good. And so as I selected that career path in the Air Force, I walked out of the office feeling really good, feeling like I had a goal ahead of me. And right next to the door was an Army recruiter. And the Army recruiter was like, hey, son, you want to be in Special Forces? And I, and I took a step back. I was like, Special Forces? I never thought about that. Like, I never considered myself to be even, like, be in that position like I, like of course that excites me but i don't think i'm good enough to be in there so I was like tell me a little more 
And he tells me more about it, tells me about the pathway. And he's like, yeah, we'll give you $25,000 right now to sign up for six years. <coughs> and I was like, man, that's very appealing, especially back in 05. And I was like, let me, um, let me go ask these guys a question real quick. And I went over to the Air Force recruiter. <coughs> and I was like, hey, do you guys have any um, special operations career fields uh, in the Air Force? And he's like, yeah, we got PJs and controllers, but you're not, you wouldn't make it. Just stick with what you got. Just, you know, go be a nuclear weapons apprentice. Like most people fail out. You know, it's a 95% attrition rate. You don't look like you would make it anyway. So just stick with what you got. And I was like, this guy, I couldn't believe the words that was coming out of his mouth. So I was like, give me this disc and let me, give me the information and, and I, like pull back my, my packet and I'll make a decision tomorrow. So I went back, looked at some of what I had or, or the information they gave me. And I was like, you know what? Combat control sounds really cool. I'm going to go do that. I want to be a combat controller. And so I trained and I said, oh, that's what, like, that's the packet I want to put in. And you have to take a pass test or a physical ability and stamina test. And as I took this test or went to take the test after months of training, the recruiter's like, okay, which one are you, which one are you taking? And I was like, what do you mean? I thought it was the same test. He's like, no, one's got to swim at the beginning and one's got to swim at the end. And I was like, well, what's the difference? He's like, there really is no difference. That's the only difference. So swim at the beginning or swim at the end. And I was like, okay, I've been training with swimming at the beginning. I'll do that and then I'll finish it out. And he's like, okay, cool. All right, you're going to be a PJ. And I was like, hold on a second. I thought I was going to be in to be a controller. He's like, when you get through basic, you get there, you can decide what you want. It's the same thing. Don't worry about it. Just do the test and move on. And I believed him. And <laughs> And little did I know this guy was lying to me and uh, probably because he had no clue. And I showed up to basic and in doc and I ended up becoming a PJ. Um, not entirely what I wanted to get into, but it is exactly what I should have got into, especially after the last 16 years of the career that I had. So that's a little bit about me and what led it into um, the career path that I went into. Um, again, I have a twin brother and an older brother, and they went down their different pathways. But yeah, that's hopefully that answers that. Yeah. So first of all, I don't think I knew that you were a twin. So I've got my twins that uh, they'll be two and a half okay. in uh, in a month. So and my my wife has a twin older brothers. They're forty four, I believe. Oh, okay. So, Lot of lot of a uh, lot of lot of twinning, <laughs> lot of twinning going on in our uh, family lineage. Oh, there you uh, go. I don't think I re- I don't think I realize that. This is a bit off topic. Well, not not really off topic, but I, I think if you could just just for a minute talk about the different ways that you can join the military. Because again, you know, I've never I've never been in the armed services, so I, I don't know. But my understanding is that there's only there's only two ways to join and that is either enlisted or uh as an officer is that is that correct yeah so you can enlist in the military as an, as an enlisted swine as we like to call them okay um, and so you you would go to a recruiter enlist in a career field that you that you would like to get into or you can go open general and this is speaking specifically to Air Force, and it's very similar to the other career fields, um, you would enlist through the recruiter, go through MEPS, which is all your planning, or, or at least they do all your, your screening 
and then sign the paperwork and then they ship you out. If you want to do the officer route, um, there's a couple of routes that you can do through that. So you can go to the academy and that's the Air Force Academy or um, the Naval Academy or West Point for the Army. Go be, become a cadet and it's just like college or very similar to college where you have school. It's just a lot of it's built on military doctrine and you start to, to develop a pathway through there. And for the Air Force, typically, you have a lot of academy grads become pilots or, or shoot to become pilots aim, aim that way. And likewise, different military leaders with the Army and, and the Navy. And then there's another route where you can actually commission to become an officer through the recruiting process and not go through the, uh, through the academy. And you would just have a, some sort of four-year degree. Uh, ah. Presents to a recruiter commission into the military as a lieutenant and then start working your way up. Gotcha. Interesting. Gotcha. Yeah, I just think I just think it's important for, you know, maybe if there's any, you know, younger people that are listening to this, you know, maybe they're exploring joining the armed services. And so maybe that tidbit will uh, just help give them some some clarity. So yeah, appreciate yeah. that explanation. Yeah, and anybody that's that's trying to join, like I would, I would highly recommend they go into the, they do research before getting, before talking to somebody. Go to a recruiter. Don't let them pressure you to sign anything yet. Go back. Nobody's holding, you know, holding a gunpoint or anything like that. Like get some, just get a bunch of information, as much information as you can, specifically about terms, you know, where what the job is that you're trying to get into, because some some folks end up signing up for a job that they didn't realize that they were going to get themselves into and then they're they're stuck for several years doing something they did not want to do right 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 i i stole this from from somebody but i can't remember who it was but he's a you know he's like a business <laughs> consultant or guy and you know he he said something that really resonated and i've kind of put it into practice now it's the it's the two-week rule and the the two-week rule is when you're going to make an important decision. And obviously joining the armed services is a extremely important life-changing, you know, decision. I, I would, I would argue, uh, or maybe it's a, it's an important business, uh, business decision or, uh, you know, some kind of big personal decision. And the rule is when you think that you want to do something, like you think you've kind of made up your mind and you want to, you want to do something, you want to take action, give yourself two weeks. And in that two-week period, think about it, you know, pray on it if that's how you are seeking guidance, talk to other people, do whatever you got to do in that two-week period, and then make your final decision. And that's uh, that's been pretty helpful just to say, like, I think I want to roll this out, but my two-week two-week period starts today. Let me ponder it a little bit, a little bit more for the next two weeks. And if I still think it's a you know good idea in two weeks, then then we'll move forward with it. And if I've reflected on it and decided that it's probably not, then, uh, you know, you can scrap it. Yeah, that's a great uh, principle to live by. I think I, I did the same thing, except mine's down to a 72-hour rule. Um, and I, I have to have a solid workout in between there. Really yeah. crush myself and then get some clarity that way. Um, and, and that applied for, you know, at the, at the end of my story about why I started up. The nonprofit to begin with, it, it, that applied. I gave myself 72 hours to make a decision and then ultimately made a life-changing decision that uh, that led me down the path that I'm on now. Yeah, we want to hear all about that. One thing 
I wanted to ask you about just before we dive into into what you're doing now. So you you mentioned PJs a couple of times. I'm thinking there's probably some people that don't know exactly what that is. So talk to us a little bit about what what's a PJ and what were you doing when you were in the Air Force? Yeah, so a lot, a lot of folks don't know that there's um, special operations career fields in the Air Force and not just special operations. I go, uh, not belittling or, or taking away from anything, but you have Air Force special operations where you have aircraft and people fly on special aircraft. And then you have a ground element. And then the two I referenced was combat control and pararescue. And those were the, the, the more notable special operations career fields. They start to expand now into special reconnaissance TACP, those those types of um, career pathways, which are two notable ones are combat control and pararescue. And pararescue is, or PJ is short for pararescue jumper. Um, and that's what we're typically referred to as. And if you can imagine everything that a SEAL would do, we do the very same thing, only we're dedicated technical rescue specialists. So when I started the pipeline of training, in 2005, I finished in early 2008. And that's two and a half years of training. And I didn't fail anything. It was everything I did the first time. Um, so that was a very fast track. <clears throat> and you do you know, airborne school, you do military free fall, survival, underwater survival, uh, EMT basic, EMT paramedic, air rescue apprentice course, in-doc, and then dive school, combat dive school. So you get all the qualifications and then you got to go out to your units and at your units, you're training just the same at all of those things, but not just learning how to do it. Now you're learning how to be proficient at it. So every single thing that you're doing, um, you're trying to maintain currencies as far as flying in a helicopter, responsible for putting people out as far as a, a fast rope or rappelling out of the helicopter, jumping. So if you're doing a, a static line jump or a free fall jump, there's different levels of a progression there so you can become a jump master free fall jump master um dive you can become a dive soup so there's all these upgrades that you can dive into but ultimately leading to our end goal and an end, end objective which our mission is to save which used to be saved down and injured air crew members behind enemy lines in today's fight there are no enemy lines and very rarely are our air crew members getting shot down so we've adapted to all members, whether that's a downed aircraft or an IED explosion on a vehicle or an injured um, soldier on the ground or a mass casualty or a dive mission or even a stateside civil SAR rescue mission, we're trained in all aspects of rescue in a deployed and civilian setting for peacetime. Um, so when we're, even when we're back home, we're on an alert in case something like a hurricane um, takes off or flooding, um, like in Kentucky recently, you had a, a bunch of floods and you had a bunch of PJs deploy and go actually help with those. Um, any natural disaster, there's probably some sort of pararescue unit that is going out to go help assist with the rescue. Even that Thai, um, all the 13 kids in the Thai cave rescue, you had a PJ team and a PJ squadron that was actually um, helping run that um, rescue effort. Mm. So a lot of my missions, especially when we were hot and heavy in the war in the early 2000s to, to 2015, it was all casualty evacuation or CASEVAC, flying directly to a point of injury, doing an extrication on the 
vehicle or a mass casualty or somebody got shot, a dog fell in a well or something like that, we're treating animals or treating humans, all of those things we're doing um, to get to the patient and then treat them, stabilize them and bring them back to the, to the hospital. Gotcha. Wow. <coughs> Although nowadays they, they may not be, you know, jumping out of the airplane, you know, uh, and, and, you know, parachuting down, they are, they're showing up and they're doing, doing really important work, you know, mostly around, like you said, kind of rescues and managing high, you know, uh, stress, high intensity, you know, situations, like you said, a flood or some kind of natural disaster or something like that. Yeah, you'd actually be pretty surprised. Actually, this past several years, there's actually been more jump missions than any other missions. So in a lot of missions that you don't hear about on the news at the unit that I was at and the, and the sister services that I was a part of and deploying with, we actually did several jump missions into different areas, um, do, searching and hunting high value targets. So in the, in the environment in Afghanistan where I was deploying and rescuing down and, and injured Americans and coalition forces, I went to a unit where now we're hunting high value targets, going for hostage rescues, things like that. So we're deploying um, and then we're doing these high risk missions or, or at least very risky missions. We're involved free fall infills and less treating the good guys and more so hunting the bad guys. And that's what the shift of my career was um, into. And even so, you, you also have the Alaska unit. In the Alaska units I would, is arguably the most busy unit in the entire PJ organization where they are always every week doing some sort of mission out into the, into the unknown wilderness of Alaska, which most of them are long time distance problems where they're having to jump in a team of, team of PJs and combat rescue officers where they're having to sustain themselves over a period of a week treating a bear mauling or somebody who's lost or somebody who's gotten injured during a skiing or climbing accident, um, doing all these different things in austere environment from jumping in and all of their equipment and then pulling themselves to an, to a location where a helicopter can now pick them up. Pretty wild. Yeah, that is wild. That's interesting, man. Very cool. I had no clue that, uh, the military, you know, would get involved in, uh, those kinds of operations, you know, rescuing civilians from right, you know, right here on our own soil. So, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, very cool. I had, I, yeah, did not know that. So, so Steve, t talk to us uh, about, about maybe specifically around like your experience in the Air Force, you know, the things that, that happened to you that, that led you, it motivated you to be doing what you're doing right now and then that'll probably take us up to about a, to a break you know you know whatever about five-ish minutes and then from there after we come back from break we'll, we'll get right into what you guys are up to now yeah absolutely thanks um so I, I like i said i spent 16 years doing this job and over that 16 years i deployed 10 times all of those were to combat zones several times to afghanistan iraq syria yemen East Africa, Lebanon, all those places fighting um, different terrorist organizations on the planet. <clears throat> and over those years, I lost several teammates, up to you know, 15 was my last count. And so after burying all these teammates and ex experiencing all these TBIs and micro TBIs and going from stress levels up here, back down, up here, back down, deployment cycles, coming back home, training cycles, 
it really started to, to wear on me. And, and where I noticed it was my memory. So my memory started to fade significantly. And there was people that I would have known for several years, up to 10 years, I have known them and I would see them and I would not remember how I knew them. I would not remember their name. And I don't, and it was embarrassing because I should know who they are. I've interacted with close friends of mine, but I just couldn't recall it. And so that was a very concerning moment in my life where I was embarrassed to talk to people because I didn't remember who they were. And in my unit that I was at, I described earlier or referenced earlier, we had a huge and robust human performance staff, which had strength conditioning coaches, uh, physical therapists, nutritionists or dietitians. You had psychologists and all these different specialists really working hard to keep us operating at a high level. And I reached out to the psychologist and the, and the neuropsychologist and said, hey, I can't remember people that I've known for a long period of time. What is going on with me? And we took a really in-depth cognitive test. And at the end of the test, so like you perform superior in all these aspects, except for one, which is attentiveness, and specifically long-term attentiveness. And that is indicative of PTSD. And I said, I don't have that. And I normalized everything because I looked at the TV and the movies and I said, hey, like I'm not waking out at night. I'm not going through these wild flashbacks and whatnot. And I didn't think I had any issues wrong with me. And so as I, I ended up seeing the psychologist anyway, based off of their recommendations, just diving into some of my past. And I was very resistant at first. And as I started, as she started to peel back these layers, she started to really highlight some symptoms that I didn't really think were symptoms. I was disconnected from my family. Um, I didn't enjoy doing my job. I had some significant sleep disorders. I had sleep apnea. I had nightmares. Um, I would have flashbacks that I didn't realize I was having. I had the memory loss, depression, and anxiety, all of these things that were listing out. And... I didn't realize I had them, especially the irritability. And so as I was like, okay, well, what do I do about this? Started to see the psychologist regularly and address a lot of those symptoms. And I started to feel better and enjoy my job again. I was the team leader of, of a group of PJs and controllers. And that's when, you know, I, I, we were coming back from deployment and we wanted to build up a morale trip and, and really get the team unity going together. So we set up a climbing trip and a, and a mountain rescue course out in, in Boise, Idaho. And it was more so the team just to come back together and teach each other some things and bond and grow as a team. <clears throat> and so as we set up that trip, we worked on a few objectives, mostly lead climbing and mountain rescue and really great trip. Um, but on the second day, we had an accident. So just let me know if we can start coming to time to take a break before I dive into this bad over. On that second day, we finished up the climbs of the day, and one of our guys had set up an anchor with a rappel line. <clears throat> and, and the anchor being there's a piece of protection inside of a rock over here, and another nut, a piece of protection inside of a rock over here with rope going towards and tied off in a knot. And then you had our long rappel rope going off of that. So guys were rappelling off the long rope on a 70 foot face. One guy gets down safely. I'm doing some instruction over with another one of our PJs, and the second guy starts his rappel. And as he starts his rappel, he feels the anchor shift a little bit, asks if we're good to go. Our 
Peter checks us to make sure it was good to go. And he said, yep, everything's fine. We're looking good. And uh, made us a, a you know, silly joke to the guy that was on the on the road because he was a controller. And then as he started his rappel, he got about halfway down and then that anchor with the, where the rock, or at least the pieces that were inside the rock, exploded, the rock around it exploded and it came out. So that came loose and now the rope is hanging on nothing. It's free flow. So he fell about 20 to 30 feet and luckily there was rocks that were hidden that were like right below him that he was able to absorb some of his impact but still had injuries when he landed. What we didn't anticipate was Peter was doing what he was trained to do. He was tied into the anchor at the very top. So the weight of one of our other guys, as he fell, it pulled Peter off the very top. So he fell the full 70 feet, flipping over, landing on his back, bouncing over to his face. Uh, down below. And so as I watched him fall, and, you know, I'll never forget this, the, you know, what his actions as he went over the edge, as he dipped his head, looked like he was looking to aim to get to a slope where he would you know, absorb his impact and he was able to roll down a little bit. Um, looked like he was calculating how he wanted to land. He was a very smart individual, very good at what he did, um, very intelligent, um, very skilled. And so <clears throat> as he flipped over and hit the, hit the rock, all I was doing was calculating injuries in my head. I was going to have a treat. And so when he hit the, the rock and bounced over to his face, I knew right there we're going to have a broken back, probably a broken neck, and some you know, a head injury of some sort. <clears throat> and I could hear him groan. So I thought, okay, he's not, he didn't die on impact. He's going to be in pain and maybe he's paralyzed from the chest down or something like that. So I gave some instructions up top to, to one of our guys down below and told him to go check for you know, heart rate, listen for him breathing, and just stay there and don't move him. I talked to my PJ that was up top, gave him some instructions for when he got down, and then I repelled down, got down to the bottom. <clears throat> and as I started to repel, the individual who's holding his pulse and listening for his breathing said, hey, you lost the pulse. And so I said, I'll just leave him there. I'll get, I'll be there in a second. So I got to him, checked and listened myself, nothing. And we rolled him over. And as I rolled him over, I could feel he had a broken neck. You could see he had some several, several other injuries and some to his face. Checked, listened again, and still nothing. And that's when we started CPR. As we started CPR, called up 911 and started listening, you know, listening or at least asking dispatch for them to launch a helicopter. And typically in all of our training in, in, in iterations, we always try to go over a med plan. And a lot of times it's, yeah, we call 911 and we have lifelines show up and everything's good. And they understand who we are and this is how it goes. And that wasn't reality. And so now anytime I give anybody feedback, I give them the experience of what I experienced where we had lifelines and I was talking to the dispatch, but she wouldn't launch it because she didn't know who I was, even though I'm saying we're doing CPR and I'm a registered paramedic and I'm on the side of this build this this cliff side and we need them right now. She needed a firefighter to get there and confirm that it is who who we're saying. So as I'm arguing and pleading with this dispatcher to please launch life flight and that he is in cardiac arrest. This is my friend that I just watched fall and I'm a paramedic. I know what I'm doing. I'm innovating him right now. It's pulled out a tube and tried to put an airway in him, but I couldn't guarantee it was in his throat. And I had to make sure for his family that it was in there and it was good to go. I had to make every effort. So ultimately, 
decided to do a surgical airway. So cut a hole in his neck and put a tube in there to make sure that that was secure. <clears throat> as we secured that, one of our other guys, as we bagged, we could hear some blood pooling in the lungs. So we, he did a finger thoracotomy or a chest tube just without the tube in the field. So cut a hole on his left side of his chest wall and leaned him over and you just see a bunch of blood pour out, probably about you know, less, a little less than a gallon or so. Uh, we sealed it back up, put him on a litter, which is called a Skedco, and then started buttoning it up as the fire department was driving back and forth and we're trying to get their attention to come up. And mind you, we're at the top of this cliff. We're still about 400 feet up. And, and a good 100 meters to 200 meters from the roadside. So by the time the fire department gets out of the vehicle and starts coming towards us, it's going to be a long time. And so I'm contemplating, let's get him set up, and we're just going to set him up on this rope, and then I'm going to attach myself to the litter, and I'm going to pretty much sprint my way down this low-angle hill with him. And if I you know, roll my ankle, break my ankle, whatever. Like we need to get him to the bottom so that helicopter can land right there. That wasn't necessarily feasible because that, what was that going to gain me? We're going to lose time in CPR, and that's what he needed right then. That's the one thing that's going to save him other than an OR table. So I waited for the fire department to get up to there, and I asked one question was, hey, does your guys' life like have a hoist? Is it hoist capable? And they said no. And that kind of really dropped my hopes because there's no way a helicopter was going to land where we were unless they were part of the 160th Regiment. Um, and this life flight definitely is not going to take the risk to land themselves you know, on a one-wheel lift landing uh, kind of thing. So that kind of dropped my heart significantly. And as the rest of the paramedics got up to the top, they placed pads on and we suctioned out the airway. Um, they continued working them and I asked my guys to go step aside and start cleaning up some of the gear because I didn't want them to see what I was going to see. I wanted to make sure I was going to see it, but I didn't want this to be their memory, which was the paramedic placing the AED pads on the on Peter and then getting the monitor reading, which I knew was going to be you know, a systole. Um, so we saw it was a systole, as flat line. I asked them to double check take out, turn it off again, double check. And again, it was a systole. And as I was bagging him, I kind of looked at his, you know, at, at him as his you know, lips were turning blue and his face was turning blue and, and watching his body relax and kind of apologized to him and his family. Gave myself a couple minutes of thinking about what just happened and what's going to happen next. Because over the next 48 to 72 hours, I knew what was going to come my way as far as an investigation. I was going to have to protect the guys that were with me. Um, I was going to have to get them home. I was going to have to make sure that they were mentally okay with what happened. And then knowing that Peter had a family, that he was married with a one, you know, little over one-year-old boy, and his wife was eight months, seven, seven or eight months pregnant. Um, so she was almost due. She was about to have her their newborn baby so contemplating the notification of the family and all of those things in the, in the memorial and the funeral and then going back home and facing his team and the squadron it was very overwhelming and but there was the only two to five minutes that i gave myself to really take that in and then 
got up and made the phone call, the hardest phone call I ever had to make was just call my boss and tell him that one of our teammates fell off a cliff side and uh, passed away in training. So that's what we did. Uh, made that call and um, got him down to this off the side of the mountain, got him to the, to the roadside and did what uh, I typically have done with many other coalition, or I'm sorry, well, coalition and Americans, which was put him in a body bag, pin a U.S. flag on his body bag, salute him as he was placed in the mortuary affairs van. Um, and then I called my boss again and pretty much said, this is the last flag I'm going to pin on a body bag and on, on a teammate. I don't want to do this anymore. I tried to quit. So that was it. That was that was that was the straw that broke the camel's back for me in my career. Yeah. Wow, man. Well, it's hard for for most of us probably to uh, relate to anything that you have been through. But we, uh, yeah, just thank thank God that there are uh, people like you that do what what you guys have done. So we'll take a quick about 30 45 second break here quick call to action and we'll jump right back into it and we want to hear all about what you're up to now and how you're helping people that have had to deal with uh, these types of situations hey there tycoons austin peterson here co-host of tycoons of small biz if you think you have what it takes to be considered a tycoon and you're wondering how you could become a featured guest please follow and then message us at tycoons of small biz on linkedin We'd love to have a conversation with you to see if it is a mutually good fit. And if so, we'll get you scheduled for an interview. If you're unsure about being a guest on our podcast, but are contemplating selling your business over the next few years, and you'd like to know what your business is worth, please also follow us and then message us on LinkedIn for your no obligation, informal valuation of your business. We look forward to hearing from you. And thanks for listening to the Tycoons of Small Biz podcast. And now back to today's program. All right, welcome back, Tycoons. All right, Steve. Well, thank you for for setting the stage for us, man. Uh, that, that's super super helpful. Gives us great context, and, and certainly helps us to understand your motivation, you know, behind, you know, what what you're doing at Shields and Stripes. So, so that being said, talk to us about the transition out of you know of the armed services and into what you're doing now and tell us all about what you guys are up to over at uh, Shields and Stripes. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And so as, as we continue with the story, it kind of leads into my transition. Um, so as I pulled my, as I claimed I wanted to, to be done, um, my boss said I could not be. Um, I had to leave my team out. And, and so what I did was pull myself off the team. Um, and I used those resources that I described earlier at the unit as far as the psychologists and the strength conditioning coaches and the physical therapists and I really worked hard at, uh, at putting myself back together. And after two and a half months or so of really diving into what had just happened, I started to feel confident enough again to take the team back and the team wanted me back. Um, so I, I took the team back and uh, within 24 hours of coming back and as the team leader, we ended up being deployed on a no notice or short notice deployment. Um, it was gone for about two and a half months where uh, we did great things, led the team. I got regained my confidence, felt great again. Um, I was ready to, to continue to work and uh, lead these, these guys in combat. So as I come back from this deployment in late February, mid-February, we're getting ready to deploy again in May. The accident investigation for what, for what happened here is closing out in April. And so what they found in that investigation was that there's nothing that we could have done to change what happened or 
change how it happened or the outcome, but they needed to hold somebody accountable, they being the military as a whole, AFSOC, and they reached down and held me accountable. So they reached down and removed me from my position as team leader and also removed me from the unit that I was at. And this unit to be there was a whole other selection course. It's our tier one units, the 24th Special Tactics Squadron. We work really hard to be there. It's a whole other training pipeline uh, to be able to work with the folks that we work with and deploy with those folks. So that's the only place I really wanted to be. <clears throat> and so when I was removed, that threw me back into depression. Now I had a piece of paper that I could hold to my psychologist and say, see, it is my fault. I wanted, I wanted it to be my fault. I wanted everyone to look at me like it was my fault. Um, and now I had validation. I had what I was looking for to throw it back in her face and uh, to go down my, my depressive route that I wanted to go down to. And so I was given 30 days to PCS, 30 days to move, uproot my family and, and move them off to a new base and that place was going to be Las Vegas and I had been stationed there before and that place almost ruined um, my relationship that I had with my wife and my family and I knew if I went there in the state in the mental state that I was in that I was going to destroy myself and my family I was going to with all the the negative influences that are available with gambling drinking what have you um, I was going to seek those out and really destroy myself because I was going to be in a place I didn't want to be. Um, and so like you referenced that two week rule, I had that 72 hour rule and I was removed from my position on a Friday, told to clean out my cages on a Saturday so that nobody could see me cleaning it out and nobody could be around cleaning it out. So not only was I fired and removed, but I was also getting this kick in the gut of, pretty much all the good things I just did for this unit, deploying seven times for this unit, and now I'm being scalded and pretty much told I'm not, I'm not allowed to come onto the compound. I'm not allowed to have my, my friends and teammates there with me while I remove my stuff from the cages. It was a very dark and lonely time. Um, and so on the Sunday, I made the decision, you know, over that 72 hours, like, this, that's not the way. I'm going to just get out. I'm going to pursue a medical retirement with my psychologist. I had all of the symptoms of PTSD to back it up. And we pursued that uh, medical retirement with no goal, like no idea what I was going to do afterwards. I didn't know how long the retirement process was going to work. I didn't know what I was going to do when I got out. I just knew what I couldn't do, which was go down this dark path. <clears throat> so I was able to keep those resources that I had for another almost year while I pursued my route out of the military. And as I pursued my route out, I was able to go to a couple places, one being Exos for shoulder rehab, developed a relationship there with them um, as far as physical conditioning and rehab goes, and may just maintain that relationship. And as I approached my tenure out within the, like the last three months out, uh, on my way out, I knew I was gonna lose those resources that I was using so much. Um, and I was going to be stuck to the VA. And so I <clears throat> called up my friends and asked, hey, what are you guys doing now that you're out? Like, how do you keep yourself together? How do you use the resources that we, were, that we used so much? And they listed all the different nonprofits and organizations that they use. And I was like, gosh, that's a lot. Like, that seems like a lot of applications to fill out and a lot of processes to go through that I don't have the bandwidth. I don't have the time. And I don't have the, 
the will and motivation to do all that stuff, then there's got to be a better way. So I did a little bit of research on my own and there was nothing else out there. So I opted to decide, hey, I want to just start something. I want to start it for veterans that mostly never used what, what we had at the unit or never knew that things like that existed. And I wanted to also do it for law enforcement because my, like I said early on, my dad spent 30 years in law enforcement, most of that being gang task force. And as I looked at my symptoms of PTSD and I looked back at my childhood, I was like, man, my dad probably had some significant PTSD that he didn't realize he had. And man, if he had the resources that I had, it would have much, not that my childhood was bad, but man, it would have changed a lot of his perspective. You know, like a lot of his paranoia and a lot of his um, telling no, saying no and, and not wanting to do anything and kind of being like depressed, you know, or, it could just have been a lot different, a lot less irritable. Um, so I was like, I got to do something for them because they don't even know something like this exists. Then likewise with for, for with firefighters, firefighters see things constantly, you know, on, on a you know, weekly basis, terrible things that they normalize. You know, I, I know that life and I have a lot of friends that are firefighters and, you know, going out to, you know, whether it's a house fire or a wreckage that family's involved in or trying to save you know, a child from choking or drowning or something like that. It's got to be devastating to them over and over to this repeated traumas. So I contacted an individual. I did some research, Dr. Jennifer Byrne, who was, had the same passion or similar passion. She had another company on the side. And I was like, hey, what are you doing with this company? She was trying to give me some tips. And ultimately, I was like, Jen, like, I don't, I'm not a doctor. I'm just a dude with an idea. And, and an executioner, like I like to execute, will you like join me in the cause of starting up this nonprofit to do what we want to do for to help the people we want to help? And she said, for sure. So she became my co-founder, called up another one of my best buds and asked if he wants to join and, and help out. And so there we had a trio of starting the nonprofit. And uh, I didn't know the first thing about starting this whole thing, but I kept getting like, hey, you just need to go out and execute. You just need to go out and do that. And I eventually I asked one of my mentors, like, how do I do that? Like, where do I, is there a building I got to go to? Is there like somebody I talk to? You got, you got a phone number of a guy I can call or a girl I can call? Like, what do I do? It's like, oh, just go to LegalZoom and just start a, a nonprofit that way. And so I did that and uh, I did it wrong. And I, I actually started an LLC. That's not the pathway. And I was like, I thought you could create an LLC and then trans, and then turn it into a 501c3 that was wrong. So I had to dissolve the LLC, start a 501c3, apply for that. And that went up to the Secretary of State. And I was like, okay, we got paperwork in. We got a name. We got a logo. <clears throat> Things are looking good. We got the federal application now to do to get a federal approval. <clears throat> and I looked at the application and I might as well be looking at code because I was like, I don't know what any of this means. <laughs> and, uh, so I got a recommendation to a tax attorney called him up and I was like, hey, can you help me fill this thing out? And he's like, for sure. <clears throat> Just send me over your bylaws. And I was like, what are bylaws? <laughs> and he's like, well, it's what governs your board. And I was like, well, what's a board? <laughs> and so he gave me some help and some tips. And then I was like, all right, well, cool. I called up a few of my best buds and we started up kind of a board and wrote out our bylaws and created a first meeting just to get the ball rolling and submitted the application in and uh, submitted it in April of last year, and they got it approved in September 
federally approved, and then we grew exponentially from there. And now we actually have a real board as opposed to like my best buds that were helping me out. And then we have a real bylaws and all those things kind of came together and this steep learning curve took effect. Um, but that's where, where we are now as far as at least the, the inception of, of how it started. Very cool, man. Well, just uh, due, due to the fact that we don't have a ton of time left, let me just serve it right back to you and just say, tell us what, what are you guys what are you guys actually doing in Shields and Stripes and who are you guys, you know, helping specifically? Yeah, I'll be, I'll be quick. So we're, we're servicing, uh, like you said, veterans and active duty members, um, both you know, military police officers and firefighters that have some sort of service related trauma. And it can be very, that's yeah, a very vague. Um, so it can be any kind of trauma experience. Actually, you know, a lot of, a lot of our traumas are sexual assaults traumas. Um, which are just as uh, traumatic as exposure to violence and things like that. So treating those type of traumas or symptoms of trauma by bringing them out to, as I referenced, EXOS. EXOS is a performance institute that typically handles professional athletes, most notably NFL. Um, And that's all physical, strength conditioning, physical therapy, nutrition, recovery modalities, all of that. So I, I... you know, build that relation up, ask them, hey, can we use your facility to bring these folks in for three weeks at a time and then use those coaches, the strength conditioning program, the physical therapists, the nutrition, get fed on site. And they're like, absolutely, bring them, bring them out. And so I then reached out, you know, as Jen developed a therapy team, we've got psychologists and social workers and occupational therapists that we now fly out to be in person on site for those three weeks at Exos and they get all of those strength and physical components. And then they, in the afternoons, they do individual and group therapy for three weeks and they get fed and they're staying in a five-star resort. And it's really a pickup out of the environment that they're, they're destroying themselves and put them in a place where they can reset, figure out this is what, what it should look like as far as your consumption of the foods you're eating, how you should train, how you should deal with the, the symptoms that you're dealing with and tools to, to cope with the traumas that you have. And then we send them back home and continue with those same modalities of treatment through a telehealth setting for another nine weeks. So it's three months total of treatment, but the nine weeks now we include the family and they have the same clinicians, same psychologists. We have a dietitian, we still have a strength conditioning coach. And then we also do blood labs and things like that, occupational therapy strategies on stress management and stuff like that. So they get all this stuff over that period of three months and it com- it's a complete reset of their mind and their body and their spirit of how to, to cope with everything at home. Um, so we've serviced, uh, we've done three cohorts so far. We've, we've got another one planned in January. <clears throat> and these ones we run between six and eight personnel at a time. Or we're always taking applications on our website at www.shieldsandstripes.org. Um, and so you apply, and that goes to our clinicians who will then screen it and then reach out to you as far as what the next steps are. And so most of these folks that have reached out to us, at least I would venture to say about half of them have had previous suicide attempts trying to take their own lives. Every single one of them, we've changed their lives. We don't just cut them off after three, three months. We check up at six months, nine months, and a year um, to make sure that they're still progressing in 
their growth with family, mental state, physical state. Um, and if for some reason they do start to have a hard time and they fall into some sort of substance abuse, we do pay for them to go to another place that we find will help them out. Like Warrior's Heart would be a, a great example of sending somebody there with, with some sort of substance abuse that they need some sort of inpatient care. What does it cost for you to um, <laughs> put together and, and facilitate one of these cohorts? You said it's about six to eight people. Yep. And it, it's, it's uh, initially it's about a three month program. So what, what does it cost to send a cohort through this program? Yeah, so individually, just depending, and a lot of the costs depend on, you know, our travel costs or, you know, agreements with, with different hotels because it is, we put them in a resort hotel because I believe that's just as healing as the therapy itself. Um, but the ultimately, the cost ranges between fifteen and $18,000 per person. And we do fundraisers. Nobody on the staff gets a salary or anything like that. We have several fundraisers that we put on. All of that money goes to pay for their flights, pays for the, the contract with Exos, pays for their meals, the hotel, their travel to and from the, the uh, hotel and Exos itself, and then the clinicians that are on site. So all of that money goes towards them and the program itself. And we just do several fundraisers like golf tournaments, galas, little pop-up booth venues to try to raise this one. Got it. Well, if you... Uh... I'll throw this out there. If you want to come out to Vegas and, and do like a golf tournament or something, we will, uh, Backbone Planning Partners, we will be happy to support, to sponsor, help help coordinate and plan it, um, show up and, and volunteer. Uh, maybe, maybe hit a few golf balls too. So uh, I'll, I'll throw that out there. But uh, yeah, Steve, unfortunately, we're, we're kind of pressed up against the end of our time here together. But, um, you know, I, I just I just recall having our our, our preliminary discussion before we, we talked today, of course, and uh, you kind of gave me some examples of some of these guys and gals that you plugged into the program. And you kind of you really just painted this 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 picture for me of just understanding how they moved through the process and how the different stages in the process had different, you know, impacts on them and stuff. So, you know, I, I will just say in closing that, uh, you know, everything that you have, have shared with me seems like you guys are just doing really incredibly impactful and meaningful work for these folks and their families. So please uh, continue to do what you guys are doing. And if anybody wants to, to reach out and connect with you or maybe has a desire or an interest in, in donating, or wants to see where your, you know, events are going to be held. What's the best way for them to track that information down? Yeah, the best way would be on our website, um, www.shieldsandstripes.org, um, all written out, um, and that'll have different links to our, the LinkedIn and Instagram page if you guys follow that social media type stuff. And then you're welcome to to search me up on LinkedIn, Stephen Nesbit, N I S B E T. So find me on there, please connect. I don't have a lot of friends on there, so um, I'm not thirty thousand mark where where I have to send a message and say oh, I'm too cool. So please, please, um, I'm open to connections and uh, reaching out. Yeah, yeah. But thank you for having me. And and one thing I'd like to add is it's just one thing that makes us different is the, the time difference. I know three months is a long time, 
but a three to five day uh, vacation that a lot of folks offer and they're, they're great. A lot of nonprofits offer are great, uh, but they certainly aren't um, preventing an individual from, from taking their own life. You know, they, we, you need tools and you need coping mechanisms and you need a resets to be able to do that. So, you know, that, that's what sets us apart. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, yeah, I, I, I encourage uh, all you tycoons out there to uh, track Steve down on uh, LinkedIn and uh, go check out their website. And uh, if it's uh, you know within you, it's your desire, then uh, let's all see if we can find a way to uh, donate to their cause because it's uh, it's meaningful and they're 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 changing the lives of these young folks that have uh, been through some pretty traumatic stuff. So. Steve, thank you so much for joining, man. Really appreciate you. It's been great getting to know you a bit more. And I, I can attest that you have at least one friend on LinkedIn because I know that we are connected there. So yeah, appreciate you, man. And yeah, that's actually how I found you was on LinkedIn and immediately was attracted to you and your story. So keep up the great work, brother. Appreciate you. Thank you again for your service. Let's have you on the show again sometime in the future, man. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast for small business owners by small business owners. Join us every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Arizona time for an introduction to another great tycoon. And be sure to follow us on our social media channels for links to all of our episodes and great content.